0: Mm-hmm. Thanks, everybody. I'm, I'm just really delighted to be with you. And I, and I really wanna thank you all on a Sunday night for coming out and and, and being here together and, and sharing in a little bit of this discussion um, with all of us together. So thank you. Um, I, uh, and, and Nick, especially, I wanna thank for the invitation um, um, to come and speak with you. So I understand that you're beginning a series on um, looking at mysticism. And so tonight, what I would like to do is kind of just give a little bit of an introduction to some what I think are really important ideas related to mysticism, to Christian mysticism in particular, and um, maybe just um, have some things to think about as you continue to talk about this in the weeks to come. Um, I, in, in sort of getting ready for tonight, one of the things that I did was that I um, looked at the website for the Open Table. And I was immediately struck by this sentence that is on the first line of the kind of about the open table section of the website, which says that the open table is rooted in the, in the Christian traditions of mysticism and liberation. It says, that's, it says right, that right there on the website, doesn't it, Reverend Latia? And I was, I was um, like really happy when I saw that. And so hopefully tonight and what we talk about tonight will resonate with, with some of your commitments and things that you value already. Um, and we'll definitely talk about mysticism tonight. Um, my the goal is that at the end of our discussion, just for at least a few minutes, the last thing I would like for us to talk about in a sort of an explicit way, is how liberation also factors into this idea of mysticism. So we'll try to hit on that a little bit um, at the end. Um, and let me just say a little bit about how I'd like to proceed tonight. Um, I have some things that I'd like to talk about, but they're just sort of my best guess at what I would like for us to talk about. And I think all of you have handouts. Those will be kind of helpful to you because I'll refer to them as, as we go along. Um, I'm a really big believer that when you talk about mysticism, one of the best ways to talk about it is to actually hear the words of mystical writers from throughout the the centuries in Christianity. So we'll look at a few just because we're only going to talk for an hour. So we'll look at a few very brief texts, but as a way to kind of think about some of the things that we, that we mean when we talk about mysticism. Um, so those handouts will have the text that we'll actually look at. So, uh, and that I'll, that I'll actually read the words of the text to you. So those will be helpful to you. Um, Uh, I would like to, my goal, time management is is certainly not my strong suit, but my goal is that I would like to leave at least a few minutes at the end of the time for us to just have some discussion about what we've talked about. But I don't want you to feel, and I really want you to hear what I'm saying next, I don't want you to feel like you have to wait for that end to talk, okay? So anything that you observe, any questions that you have as we go along, I want you to jump right into the discussion at that point. I want you to feel free to do that. We'll just try to set aside at least a few minutes at the end for some dedicated time that we can have some discussion about anything that strikes you about what we talk about. Does that all make sense? We all all good with that? Okay, great. Awesome. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, So like I said, I kind of want to set the stage for the weeks to come in terms of what you're going to talk about. And so what I'd like to begin with tonight, very simply, is a question what is mysticism I and mean, what do we even mean when we use that word? And um, just so I can really kind of, uh, kind of put into practice what I just said about everybody you know, being welcome to speak and add their voice to the discussion, how about, if I have, how about if we ask for three volunteers, three really brave people right at the beginning of our discussion to volunteer to share with the group what you think of when you hear the word mysticism all right and it's it would actually be okay if for some of you right now you're thinking I have no idea what I what I think about or what that means when I hear that word but I bet I bet some of you have at least some sense of what that word might mean so how about if we have three people I'm just going to call on you okay and how about it, if you would be okay with doing this i know you're wearing name tags but when when I when I point at you or when you want to say something would you just say what your name is just cuz that's I kind of like to hear names and kind of know who's talking so okay go for it i'm Paula this is Paula all right
1: Otherworldly or esoteric, the highest thinking, uh, the invisible knowing, the discovery and mystery that uh, sages and prophets have pondered or received messages about that they can communicate.
0: Okay, so I mean, lots of stuff in what you said, Paula, but let's just jump, let's just like pull out a couple of keywords mystery. You talked about sort of the highest form of knowing, right? And you also talked about whatever it is that you know in this that you communicate it to other people. These are all really important parts of what mysticism is about, okay? How about two more people who are really brave and want to say what they think of when they think of the word mysticism? Okay, Reverend Latia. I would say
1: um, making intentional space and... um Using
0: intentional practices to ensure is more resilient. Huge. I really appreciate you saying that. This is a big personal thing for me in terms of my own kind of study of what I think mysticism is about is that um, one of the things that I think sometimes doesn't get as much attention in talking about it, but I think it's crucially important is the idea of practice, that mysticism is actually something that can be practiced. It's something that can be put into action and and that practices are an important part of it. Everybody sort of says, yeah, that's the case, but it doesn't often get a lot of discussion when mysticism is talked about. And I think that's absolutely crucial. So I really appreciate you saying that. Great. Thank you, Reverend Latia. Okay, one more person. Okay. My name's Abhishek. Okay, Abhishek. I think um, I think of the like
1: integration
0: in mysticism. So integrating um, like the real world with the metaphysical world, Yeah. Like yeah.
1: integrating emotions and thought, Yeah. Integrating um,
0: community, like the individual with the community, and yeah, just kind of tying those things together. So in a sense, I mean, like it brings together everything that a person is, right? And and, and sort of like building on what I just said to Reverend Latia a few minutes ago, um, the the body is a part of who we are mysticism often mystical texts have a really strong embodied component to them Um, the emotions thoughts everything that we are but also not only everything that we are individually but how individuals are also members of community and is and and does mysticism then somehow through the individual experience impact the community this is a really important question absolutely okay great thank you so much thank you everyone who shared okay everybody else just remember you're you're welcome to to talk as we go along tonight all right so i would like to start with with thinking about a way that mysticism not so much can be defined but can be I, 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 I think of it more of a, a description of what mysticism involves than kind of a, a hard and fast definition um, but I will anytime I sort of like start to talk about mysticism um, the story that happened to me comes to mind in terms of, of how we might um, what it might mean to define mysticism so this story now goes back um, Oh, gosh, probably about 15 years ago now. I'm trying to think. My daughter, who was about to graduate from college, was very young. She was probably about three or four years old when this happened. And um, I was getting ready for the first time. Actually, I actually know what year it was. It was 2003. I was getting ready for the first time to teach a college course that was going to focus on mysticism and I was really nervous about it. i had spent all summer getting ready for it, and it was a few weeks before the semester was gonna start, and I I was sitting at my dining room table, I had books piled up all over the table, and I was trying to sort of put together and plan what I wanted to talk about in this course. And it just so happened that this day there was a handyman at our house who was doing some work around our house. And so while he was kind of working around the house, I was working at the table and, and working on this class. And he got really sort of intrigued by what I was doing. And so finally he asked, he said, well, what are you working on? I said, well, I'm getting ready to teach this class this fall and I'm, I'm trying to get things ready for it. And he said, what is it a class about? And I said, it's about mysticism. And he, he did exactly what I think most people would do, which is say, what is mysticism? And I realized at that moment, I had absolutely no idea how to answer that question. I had no idea what to say in response to that question as I was getting ready to teach this course on it. So this is a hard thing to define. It's a hard, and there is no one definition. But let me suggest this is kind of a a place that we can start with in working uh, in towards a discussion of what mysticism is. Now, this is not my definition. This This definition comes from a scholar of mysticism, Christian mysticism in particular, named Bernard McGinn. And I think for my money, for lots of people's money, he's probably like the single most renowned scholar of the history of Christian mysticism. And I would say just maybe, because I've said it a couple of times already, let me just sort of clarify. Mysticism is bigger than Christianity. You can find some form of mysticism, I would suggest, in really any religious tradition. But tonight what I'm going to focus on Um, is what mysticism looks like within the context of Christianity. So that's going to be my focus is on Christian mysticism. So if you look at your handout, um, under number one on the handout, on the first page of the handout, where it says, what is mysticism? You will see on that first bullet point how the scholar of mysticism, Bernard McGinn, describes what Christian mysticism is. And I would just like to look at that definition. And have you noticed that there's a few really important components in that definition? So he says, mysticism is that part of Christian belief and practice that concerns preparation for, consciousness of, and effects from the direct presence of God, okay? And so I'm just going to point out a couple of things that I think are really noteworthy in that definition. First of all, notice that he begins with the phrase, mysticism is a part of Christian belief and practice. Now, this is really important. What it suggests is, while mysticism is something kind of distinctive that we can talk about, it needs to be seen as connected with the larger religious tradition that it is a part of, Okay, It's not something that sort of just exists on its own in a vacuum. In the context of what we're talking about, mysticism is related to other elements of Christianity, other elements of Christian belief, other elements of Christian practice, okay? It is a part of the tradition as a whole. I'm gonna come back to that in a minute, but I think it's it's an important first observation. The second thing, and I think this is is probably where where I'll kind of spend most of our time tonight, is an observation that mysticism in this description involves a process. It involves a three-part process of preparation, consciousness, and effects. All right. Now, what that suggests is mysticism is about an experience that people have. It's about a consciousness that people have, an awareness of something that people have. But that's only part of the thing. Mysticism is a process. And and Reverend Latia, here's where what you said about practices is so important. Mysticism involves certain things that people do. It involves certain practices that prepare for uh, prepare a person for an experience of God. All right, so first of all in the process is a period of preparation. Then there is a moment of consciousness. And consciousness is, to use a synonym, consciousness simply refers to awareness. It is when a person becomes aware of the divine presence, aware of God in some way. That's the consciousness. But it doesn't end there because there is a final part of the process, which is to ask, what effect does that consciousness then have on the person? How do they take what they've experienced of the divine and share it with other people? And how are they changed by it? how do they do something with this experience that they have? Abhishek, here's where I think, you know, what you said is very important. If you have this experience of God, how does it affect you and then in turn affect the other people that you are in contact with? What are the effects of that experience? So mysticism involves all of that. It involves preparation, the practices that get a person ready for, for consciousness of God's presence, the consciousness itself. And then how that how a person is changed, how they're affected by that consciousness and what they do to share it with other people. These are all this. This entire process is what we mean when we talk about mysticism. And then the final part of the definition that I would just point to is what is this consciousness of? Well, in the definition that that I read, it says it is a consciousness of the direct Presence of God. Now, this is probably the most kind of vague and difficult part of that definition to talk about. But when that phrase, the direct presence of God is used, it simply refers to the idea that in mysticism, we are talking about a human awareness of God. That is, and I'm going to use very vague and fuzzy words right now, that is somehow more profound, more powerful, deeper than any other type of awareness of the divine presence that people have. We're talking about an awareness of the divine presence that is unlike ordinary consciousness that is unlike sort of our day-to-day experience of things. This is happening on a level that is different from that. And that's what we mean when we talk about it as being a consciousness of the direct presence of God. That's what that phrase direct presence refers to. Okay. So we're talking about something that is a part in this case, in this context, is a part of Christianity as a whole that involves a process of preparation, consciousness, and effect, and that is an awareness of God's presence in a particularly powerful, and profound and intimate way. That's what we mean when we talk about mysticism, okay? Now, this is something that we can find examples of in Christianity from, uh, I mean, I would, well, what I'm gonna suggest in a few minutes is you find examples of it in the Bible itself, but certainly by the second century in Christianity, you find explicit references to things that we could think about as being mysticism, and we can take it all the way up to the present day within Christianity. Before we start to look at some specific instances though, let me say one other kind of introductory thing about mysticism, and that's the word itself. Just etymologically, where does the word mysticism come from? Now, as a noun, mysticism, that word did not actually even exist until about the 17th century, okay? It's actually a fairly recent kind of modern world word. Mysticism is a noun. But what you did have in Christianity as early as the mid-2nd century is the adjective mystical. Okay. And that's actually where the noun comes from much later. Um, the, as early as the second century you had in Greek and a lot of early Christian writings were done in Greek. You had the Greek word mystikos, which is translated into English mystical. It was an adjective that was applied to other things. Most specifically in Christianity in the second century, the word mystical was used in reference to the Bible and to the rituals of the early church, the sacraments, the rituals of the early church. Now, what that word mystical means is something like this, the hidden or the secret, okay? It's where we get our word mystery from, ultimately. Something that is hidden, a hidden meaning, or a hidden presence within something. That's what the word mystical meant. And when it was used with reference to the Bible and the sacraments of the early church, it simply referred to the idea that when you read scripture, there were levels of meaning within scripture. And the more you read it and the more you thought about it, you could uncover hidden levels of meaning. And in fact, more than just hidden levels of meaning, you could actually encounter the hidden presence of God as you encountered the words of scripture. And very similarly with the rituals of the early church, with the sacraments, that these are very physical rituals. They involve physical objects, but within them, there was a hidden divine presence that could be encountered through those rituals. And so this is what was meant by mysticism in the in, in early Christianity. The idea that, and, and, and I think it goes back to that idea of mysticism as a part of Christian belief and practice, that as you participated in the Christian community, as you read scripture, as you, as you participated in the rituals of the community, you could encounter the hidden presence of God in those things. That's what the word mystical actually originally referred to. Um, Reverend Latia, you said something as you introduced things tonight. You said, um, you you talked about the importance of being aware of God's presence, right? That's exactly what they meant by mystical in early Christianity, that God's presence was hidden in things. It was a hidden secret presence. And the human um, opportunity was to do things to become aware of that hidden presence. That's what was meant by the mystical right there. Okay. So we have a sense now, hopefully, just a little bit of sense, just very, very preliminary, very introductory sense of what we mean by that word mysticism within the context of Christianity. So what I would like to talk about next are some specific sort of expressions of what I've talked about theoretically so far. And I I sort of want to use the last thing I talked about as a guide for the next couple things that we talk about. I talked about the word mystical as referring to to scripture on the one hand and to the sacraments of the early church on the other hand. So I'd like for those to be sort of our next two points of discussion. First of all, I would like to look, and I'm, I'm going to limit myself to three. There's, there's a bunch of them. I'm going to limit myself to three. Three kind of classic sources within the Bible, which, which at least suggest this idea of a human consciousness of God's presence and what that might look like. All right. Now, there's lots of these. There are a number of of scriptural sources, passages within scripture that have become sort of classic passages within the traditions of Christian mysticism. I'll mention three of them briefly. And then after that, I'd like to look at, and here's where we'll, we'll start to look at specifically some primary text of mystical writings I'd like to look at a few examples of how the sacraments, the rituals of the church have been associated with mystical experiences. So those will be the next two things that we talk about. And then the last thing I'd like to talk about is really to sort of at least at least introduce this subject of how does a mystical awareness of God's presence Um, affect people who have it. And what does it mean, especially in terms of action in the world and perhaps even action for liberation in the world? How is that implicated within mysticism? So that's what I'd kind of like for us to, that's, that's what I'd like for us to talk about for the rest of our time. So let's look at these three scriptural passages. Okay. And these, and I've actually given you the text of these because they're all very brief. Um, This is under number two on the handout. And, And these are like, classic instances. You will find reference in in Christian mystical writings to all three of these passages and then also to a number of other ones. But just with an hour, I'm just going to limit myself just to these three. These are classic scriptural references that, that you'll find in mystical writings and that are associated with this consciousness of God's presence. So the first is from the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 8. Okay. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Notice that last phrase there. They will see God. This reference to being aware of God's presence, a consciousness of God's presence. In this instance, um, talked about in terms of a visual awareness, but it's it's not necessarily always understood as a a, literal physical vision of God. It's talking more generally about simply being aware of God, aware of the divine presence. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Now, let me suggest one other thing that's really important about this passage, though. Um, it doesn't just talk about the awareness of God's presence, they will see God. It begins with the phrase, Blessed are the pure in heart. Okay, so that would suggest that there are things people can do to ready themselves to experience God's presence, right? There are things people can do to purify their hearts. In order to become aware of the divine. This is where that whole issue of practices and preparation comes into the discussion. It's not just about seeing God. It's about what do you do to ready yourself to see God? Blessed are the pure in heart. How do you achieve that state of purity of heart so that seeing God becomes a possibility? Right? So there's a, that's a really classic instance of this idea of a consciousness of God um, from the Bible. Now, the next two are going to just sort of highlight uh, what I would suggest are kind of different dimensions of what that consciousness of God's presence might involve. So the, the next one I want to mention is from 1 Corinthians 6, 17 but anyone united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. This is probably the single most classic scriptural passage that talks about a union of the human and the divine, okay? But anyone united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. This idea that human beings can become united to God's presence. That is one of the ways, not not the only way, there's many different ways, but that's one of the ways in Christian mysticism that an awareness of God's presence is talked about as a union of the human being with God. And this is one of the classic kind of scriptural references to that, all right? And then finally, a third one, and this is this this reference um, kind of opens into a topic that could be a whole night of discussion in and of itself, so I'm just going to briefly mention it tonight, but this is from the second letter of Peter chapter 1-4. You may become participants of the divine nature. Okay, now this suggests the idea that human beings can actually grow into Um, A condition in which they become like God in which God's qualities become their qualities God's immortality God's blessedness God's holiness can be shared with the human being and the human being can take on those qualities can participate in those qualities the technical term for this in Christianity and Christian mysticism is deification to become like God and this scriptural passage is kind of like the foundational passage for that idea. That human beings can unite to God and in uniting to God can become like God, can take on God's qualities. Okay, now there's there's many other examples we could use. But I just want to give you just a little bit of a taste of the idea here that when we talk about mysticism, we talk about the different ways that human beings encounter the divine presence and become consciousness of God's presence. There are many suggestions within scripture itself of what that might actually look like. And again, this makes sense, right? Because what did the word mystical originally mean within Christianity? It meant finding the presence of God in, in at least one of the places within the words of scripture itself. So, I've just given you some examples of what that might actually look like as you look at the words of Scripture. How's this idea of, of sort of the meaning and the experience of finding God's presence within those words? Okay? So we have this idea that we find these references to mysticism within scripture. But notice the other thing that I mentioned was that um, the word mystical in early Christianity, in addition to referring to a hidden meaning within scripture, also referred to the idea of a hidden meaning, a hidden presence within the rituals of the church. Um, And the idea very simply that through participation in these ritual practices, these very physical practices, these very embodied practices, through those, a human being could come to experience God's presence. And so what I would like to do for, for the next part of our discussion is look at some very particular instances where the practice of Christian rituals are talked about, but they are talked about in terms of the human being experiencing god through the rituals that's what i want us to kind of focus on there okay and again go back to this idea a a couple of ideas first of all the idea of practice the idea of doing things to prepare for an experience of God's presence, and also this idea that that's what one of the things the mystical the mystical refers to fundamentally this hidden presence within the rituals of the church. Um, now I'm going to focus on texts that um, are about two rituals in particular. Um, one text that looks at the ritual of baptism, the initiation ritual of Christianity, and then I'm going to look at two texts which look at the ritual of Eucharist of communion, the Lord's Supper. And in each of these the theme is going to be, how are these rituals about an experience of God's presence? Okay now this will be the first time that in addition to the, the page of the of the handout that has the outline on it, um, if you can flip to the second page, you're actually going to see some short quotes from primary text. And I've tried to, I've tried to make each of these somewhat brief. I was successful on most of them. There's one, there's one that I got a little bit long, but it's really good. It's worth it. I promise. Okay. Um, so, um, So, listen, I'm I'm a really big believer that when you talk about mysticism, the the one thing you don't need to hear is more of Glenn's words. What you actually need to hear are the words of mystical writers from throughout the centuries of Christianity. So the first text that I'm going to ask us to look at is from an early Christian writer, second, third century, so really early, um, named Clement of Alexandria. Clement is the first person documented within writings of the early church who actually used the word mystical in his writings. Okay, so he's an important early writer. Um, And in this brief text that I that I have from him here, he is talking about the sacrament of baptism. He's talking about what happens to a person when they are washed in baptism and they are initiated into the Christian community through baptism. And the way he talks about this, it's really interesting. The way he talks about it is he catalogs a number of different names that are used for this ritual. And he then, just, just in a few lines, he says what is important about each of those names. And what I really want you to notice, of all of the names he talks about, the name I really want you to notice is that he uses the word enlightenment as one of the names that baptism is used by, and is is one of the names that's used for baptism. And I want you to notice what he says about that, why he says baptism is called an enlightenment. That I think is, is most specifically the mystical dimension of this, okay? Some of the other stuff he says will probably sound very familiar, but notice what he says about baptism as an enlightenment. Okay, so I'm just gonna read this text to you, okay? So Clement says, this work has many names, and the work is baptism. This work has many names. Gift of grace, enlightenment, perfection, washing. Washing, by which we are cleansed from the filth of our sins. Gift of grace, by which the penalties of our sins are canceled. Now, I would suggest probably what he said up to this point is probably pretty familiar with what most people think about as baptism. Baptism is a washing. It's a cleansing. It's a cleansing of sin in particular. But now listen to this next thing that he says. Enlightenment through which that holy light which saves us is perceived. That is by which our eyes are made keen to see the divine. Perfection means the lack of nothing, for what is still lacking to him who has the knowledge of God. And listen to what he says there, everybody. He says that when a person is baptized, yes, their sins are washed away. They are cleansed. Absolutely. He's not denying it that, but he's saying something way more than that. He is saying that when a person is baptized, they are changed. Their consciousness is changed so that they are now able to perceive God's presence. Their eyes are open. Now he's speaking metaphorically there, well, sort of metaphorically, but he also means it very seriously. Their eyes are open in the sense that God's presence now becomes a reality to them. They can be aware of God's presence in a way that they were not before. That, I think, is what I mean when I talk about a mystical dimension of the sacraments. This idea that the sacramental practices are ways to become aware of God's presence. And that's exactly what Clement is talking about there. Okay, Now, that's the sacrament of, of, of baptism. But I think probably in a lot of mystical writing, um, the sacrament that is most associated with becoming aware of God's presence is the sacrament of communion or the Eucharist. And so I'd like to look at two texts, and they're very different from one another, but two texts which address this idea of participation in the sacrament of Eucharist and how it becomes a means of becoming aware of God's presence. So the first text I'm going to look at is is another very early church one. It's from the fourth century. And it's a text from an early church writer named Cyril of Jerusalem. Now, just to maybe place this text just a little bit, Cyril this is part of a much larger work in which Cyril is reflecting on each of the rituals of the early church and what each of them does to the human being who participates in them and what each of them means. actually a text in which Cyril was giving instruction to people who were in the process of being initiated into the church and were, were, were in the process of becoming Christian. All right. And so he's talking about what the rituals of the church mean. But listen to how he describes the ritual of Eucharist in particular here. Okay. So so just a word here about Cyril's understanding before we read the text. Um, this is a ritual. This is a sacrament in which people are going to, to share bread and wine. But for Cyril And for the early Christians, um, it was a given that that bread and wine contained the presence of the body and blood of Jesus. Now, they, they usually did go go real far in terms of explaining exactly what that meant or how they understood it. But Cyril is writing from a perspective in which when when a when a person consumes that bread and wine, they're actually consuming the body and blood of Jesus. And that's going to be sort of an assumed foundation of what he's going to say here. Okay. So as as you listen to Cyril's words here, notice what he says happens to the person as they receive the Eucharist. Notice how he he sees the Eucharist as a union with Jesus. And And then maybe even a step further in terms of what it means. Okay. So here's what he says. Therefore, with fullest assurance, let us partake of the body and blood of Christ for in the figure of bread is given to you his body and in the figure of wine, his blood that you by partaking in the body and blood of Christ might be made of the same body and the same blood with him. For thus we come to bear Christ in us because his body and blood are diffused through our members. Thus it is that according to the blessed Peter, we become partakers of the divine nature. Now I'll come back to that last line in just a second. But before, before we get to that, first of all, I just would ask you to notice how, how powerfully physical this text is. What Cyril is saying happens is that when you consume that bread and wine, because it is the body and blood of Jesus, Jesus' body and blood is united to your body and blood. His body and blood become a part of your body and blood. He's talking about the Eucharist as a union with Christ, but in a very physical way. That body and blood becomes a part of your body through the reception of the Eucharist. Um, Abhishek, I think this is where you, you mentioned very early in our discussion tonight, this idea of kind of all of the different dimensions of the person, body, emotions, mind. Look at how embodied this text. This is a physical union with Jesus. And let's take it even one step further, look back at that last line again, thus it is that according to the blessed Peter, we become partakers of the divine nature. Since Jesus is divine, since Jesus is God, through the reception of Jesus's body and blood, the human being shares in that divinity and becomes a participant in the divine nature. Now, when he says, according to the blessed, to the blessed Peter, what he's referring to there is that scriptural text I read to you a few minutes ago from 2 Peter 1.4, where it says, you may become a participant or a partaker of the divine nature. That's what Cyril's talking about there. He is saying that when we are united with Jesus in the Eucharist, we are united with Jesus's divinity. Okay, we become sharers in that divinity. The qualities of God, the divine qualities of God begin to be shared with us through our participation in the Eucharist. So this is, this is a union with God, with divinity in sort of the most literal, physical, total sense possible according to Cyril, all right? Yeah, go for, okay, good, great. We have, a, we have, we have an observation, and this is an observation from Sarah, all right, Sarah? Lay it on us, let's do it. I, it's, a great, it's a great question. So I would say like these first two that we've read, Clement and Cyril, totally, totally accepted in the early church. At the, here's, so here's something really interesting. Sarah. So these first two writers that I put on here, Clement and Cyril, a lot of people who kind of know something about Christian mysticism and know kind of the big names of Christian mysticism, Meister Eckhart, Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, they're, they look at this, they say, Clement, sir, these are just like early church theologians. Why, why would you include them in, in, in these early rites? Because the early Christian theology was by definition mystical. It was all about the human being uniting to God. It was about a union of the human and divine. So almost any early church, and for the first few centuries, I, I would say roughly, a little bit of a generalization here, first four or five centuries of Christianity, almost any theological writing that you read is gonna at some level be a mystical text. I mean, just that was just that was the the assumption that they were operating out of that what Christianity was about was a union of the human and divine together. So what they're saying here is not even really unique to them. They just are they just put it in really beautiful words that I like to read to, to, to people when we talk about it. But these are ideas that are just, just assumed commonplace ideas within early Christianity absolutely that's a really good question um, because it, what it really points to is the first thing that I said about mysticism which is this isn't something that just kind of exists out on its own this was part and parcel of early Christianity it was just it was just a fun not, I mean not only was it part and parcel it was it was the foundation of what Christianity was even about in early Christianity absolutely now. I will say, I mean, your question really sets up the next text that we're going to look at, which is we're going to jump way forward in time to the 13th century, and we're going to look at a text by a medieval woman named Hadowitch. All right? She was from what is in modern, in, in, in um, the modern days, what is Belgium. That is where Hadowitch was from. Now, Hadowitch's text itself. Um, I don't know, is, was, was probably not particularly problematic in the 13th century. But Hattowicz was a part of a medieval women's movement. And when I say this name, I'm going to bet some of you have heard of it. It was a medieval women's movement named the Beguines. And the Beguines were huge in the 13th century. Um, the Beguines, it was, a, it was a women's movement, which was kind of seen as an alternative to traditional professed religious life for women in the Middle Ages. So women, instead of going and joining kind of like one of the traditional religious orders and joining a convent and becoming a nun, there was a movement for a couple of centuries, kind of 13th and 14th century, where women would just decide they wanted to live the religious life, but they wanted to do it in kind of a less formal way. And so groups of women would live together in community, they would pray um, and practice the sacraments together in community. They would also go out and do good works in the world. Um, and they would do this kind of, um, there, there, there would always be sort of a priest that sort of was there um, in support of them and that would do the sacraments with them. But largely speaking, they were independent communities of women. They were known as the Beguines. This next text from Hadowitch. Hadowich was one of the primary Beguine writers. Now, the Beguines after a couple of centuries were stomped out in the medieval church. And it's not so much their ideas, but what it is is the fact that they were very independent women in the Middle Ages. And eventually they were seen as sort of being out of the control of the the institutional church. And so the movement was kind of squashed after a while. So, Sarah, your question is really important because there are certainly some instances where mystical writers do run into conflict with, with the institutional church. I would actually suggest that doesn't. I would suggest that that is the exception rather than the rule. In Christianity, most mystical writers are usually pretty accepted by the institutional church. There are some instances, a few, very, very well-known instances where they have run into conflict. Um, but the Beguines, not so much necessarily because of their ideas, in, in the case of Hadewich, but as a movement, they did run into conflict with the early church, or with the, with the medieval church. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Thank you. It's a really good, really good question, Sarah, Thank you. Now, now here 's what 's so interesting about Hadowitch everybody she 's going to also write about the Eucharist she 's going to write about the Eucharist in relationship to a mystical experience, but she is going to write about it in like a really powerful and profound way. What Hadowitch is going to narrate here is it 's a, a very autobiographical text she 's going to narrate an experience that she had as she received the Eucharist during Mass. And she is going to describe an experience that is associated with the Eucharist in which she has a vision of Jesus. And then it's even going to go a step further. Not only does she have a vision of Jesus, but she is united with Jesus in that vision and in that experience in a really profound way. And even the the, the union itself moves through a couple of stages. So I've broken this text up into two passages. And this is is one place where I I found it hard to limit myself in length because I really wanted you to get a sense of Hadowitch's words here. But this is, I still remember the first time I read this text. I was just, I was blown away by its beauty and its power and how she had this, it really associated this powerful experience of the divine with a ritual practice of the church. Because I just would like to read the first passage and I'll make a couple of comments, then we'll move into the second passage. So here's what she says. Now the he in the first line is Jesus. So she is explaining as she gets ready to receive the Eucharist that she sees Jesus. She has a vision of Jesus. And it's pretty clear here that this is a physical vision that she's describing here. So here's what she says. Thereupon he came in the appearance and in the clothing of the man he was on that day when he first gave us his body, that appearance of a human being and a man showing his sweet and beautiful and sorrowful face. So what she's saying there is she's seeing Jesus as an adult, most specifically as what he looked like when he was crucified. Okay. That's what she's actually saying there and approaching me with the humility of one who belongs entirely to another. Then he gave himself to me in the form of the sacrament, in the manner to which people are accustomed. Then he gave me to drink from the chalice in the manner and taste to which people are accustomed. So in Hadowitch's vision, it is actually Jesus who is giving her the bread and wine, who is giving her communion, All right? Now listen to this next part. Then he came to me himself and took me completely in his arms and pressed me to him and all my limbs felt his limbs in the full satisfaction that my heart and my humanity desired. So in this vision, she's received the Eucharist and then Christ literally embraces her and she is united with Christ. Okay. So this is the first dimension of the union. She has this union with Christ in which Christ embraces her and she feels his body pressed against hers. Now, What I want to just suggest to you as we move into the second passage is notice what type of union that is. She is being united with Christ, but they are still two distinct beings at that point. There is a Jesus and there is a Hadowitch, and they are united in this embrace, but they're still distinct from one another. Now watch what happens in the next part of this. So now the vision continues. But all too soon I lost external sight of the shape of that beautiful man, and I saw him disappear to nothing. So quickly melting away and fusing together that I could not see or observe him outside of me nor discern him within me. It was to me at that moment as if we were one without distinction. All of this was external, in sight, in taste, in touch, just as people may taste and see and touch receiving the external sacrament just as a beloved may receive her lover in the full pleasure of seeing and hearing with the one becoming one with the other. After this, I remained in a state of oneness with my beloved so that I melted into him and ceased to be myself. All right. Now for my money, everybody, that is one of the best mystical texts there is right there. I love it. I love it. it. It all begins with this ritual that everybody in the church at this time participates in, but it becomes for Hadowitch this profound experience in which she sees Jesus, she's embraced by Jesus, and then, and I think really the key phrase in that second part of the passage that I read, she and Jesus become one without distinction. There is this part of the experience in which they are so united that you can't even talk about a Jesus and a Hadowitch anymore. They're totally united with one another. that's the power of the mystical experience associated with the Eucharist in the way that she talks about it, okay? Um, I would also just point out here Again, I, I know this is, this is like, like with practices. This is one of the things that I always keep coming back to in mysticism, the physicality of this experience. She even, she even specifies that it is external in sight in taste and touch. There is a really physical dimension to this. And of course, that's the whole idea of the rituals of Christianity as well. They're physical rituals. They're physical actions. They involve physical objects, but they lead to an experience of God. That's exactly what Hadowich is talking about here. Okay. So we have talked about what mysticism is, about how you can see some, some references to it, some suggestions of it in scripture and about how the sacraments, the rituals of the church might be thought of as mystical practices, as things that, that enable and prepare a person to be conscious of God's presence. So there's a lot more that we could say about the actual experience of God's presence, but what I want to do now is actually jump forward to kind of, if we think about mysticism as being a process of preparation, consciousness, and effect, I want to jump forward to that last part of the process. So let's say that a person has a consciousness of the direct presence of God. They become aware of God's presence. What does that do to them? How are they changed by it? And how do they then take that into action in the world. How does it do something in terms of how they live in the world and how perhaps even they struggle for justice in the world or they serve their fellow human beings? How is mysticism related to that? Now, in traditional language in Christianity, this is known as the question of contemplation and action. That's the sort of technical term for this issue. And and those two terms mean something very simple. Contemplation in this context could really almost be just a synonym for the mystical experience. Contemplation simply refers to an awareness of God Um, and usually an awareness of God that is in some sense associated with kind of um, traditionally anyway. So I I want to kind of, I want to interrogate the traditional understanding, but traditionally contemplation is associated with an awareness of God in which a person kind of withdraws from the busyness and the activity of the world and maybe in quiet prayerful moments becomes aware of God's presence. That's usually what's referred to as contemplation or the contemplative life. Okay. Action is the exact opposite within Christianity. Action, the act of life, refers to doing things in the world, engagement in the world, most specifically engagement in the sense of serving other people, doing things to make the world better and improve the lives of other people. So the question then becomes, how are these two things related to one another? Okay, So if you have this contemplative experience of God, how is it related to action in the world, to doing things in the world, particularly doing things that improve the lives of your fellow human beings. That's the question of contemplation and action. And so what I would like to do, and this will be the last thing that we talk about, is I would like to look at two texts, one from very long ago and one from much more recently, um, which tackle this subject of how mysticism can lead to action in the world. Now, the first text that I want to look at is a very traditional text, and it's a text from the sixth century written by a man named Gregory the Great. Gregory the Great was a pope. He was a pope in the early church in the sixth century. He was also a monk before he became a pope, and he writes a text in which this text is kind of like a guidebook for church leaders. It was most specifically written for bishops, and it was basically a text in which Gregory was kind of guiding bishops into how they could serve people in the church, how they could be active, in the church, but also be aware of God's presence at the same time? How could they be contemplative and active? Although that's who it was written for originally, I think this text says a lot to anyone who struggles with this question, okay? So um, just think about by implication, this text could be addressed to any of us. But what Gregory is really going to do is suggest that a full human life has to involve moments of both contemplation and action. It has to involve moments of withdrawal and quiet where you can become aware of God's presence, but it also has to involve moments of action, of doing things to serve other people, all right? And so one of the ways that Gregory is going to talk about that is he's going to use an image of Jesus that you find in the Bible. And he's going to draw draw an image of Jesus, particularly that you find in the gospel of Luke chapter six. All right. And so if you read the gospel of Luke chapter six, it's talking about Jesus and Jesus is in the midst of his public ministry. And it says that Jesus does two things. First of all, Jesus spends his day in the town teaching people, performing miracles, healing the sick. He's very active. He's very busy. He's very engaged with serving other people. But then at night, it says Jesus goes to the top of the mountain and he spends the night in prayer to God. Gregory is going to say that's an exact model of how human beings should live. They should engage in both of those types of activities. They should engage in service to their fellow human beings, but they should also at some times withdraw from that action so they can quietly be in God's presence. So I'd like for you to hear how Gregory describes this now. So this is going to be on the last page, page three, the text that's at the top of the page from Gregory the Great. So it's going to start with this phrase, thus the truth. And you'll notice truth is capitalized. He is using truth as a title for Jesus there. He's talking about Jesus. Okay. So here's what he says. Thus, the truth itself manifested to us by assuming our human nature engaged in prayer on the mountain and worked miracles in the towns. Okay. The two things that he did there. He thus showed us the way to be followed by good rulers. Again, remember, he's writing this for church leaders, but I would suggest by implication, it's for all of us. He thus showed the way to be followed by good rulers who, though they strive after the highest things by contemplation, should nevertheless by their compassion share in the needs of the weak. Then indeed, charity rises to sublime heights when in pity it is drawn by the lowly things of the neighbor. And the more kindly it stoops to infirmity, the mightier is its reach to the highest. Now there's a lot of word, that those last couple sentences are very wordy, but Gregory's making a really important point there. He is saying that a human being needs to engage in awareness of God, but also in awareness and service to their fellow human beings. And then he actually goes one step further. He says, when you are serving your fellow human beings, that increases your awareness of God and vice versa. When you spend time in in withdrawing and being in awareness of God quietly, it helps you to better serve your fellow human beings. So Gregory really sees contemplation and action as almost kind of like mutually enriching one another. Sometimes you have to be active in the world. Sometimes you can withdraw and quietly be aware of God's presence and stillness. But these two things, even though they're very different from one another, they mutually support one another. And the more you're aware of God, the better you serve your neighbor. And the more you love your neighbor, the more you can be aware of God. They both work together. That's Gregory's suggestion there. Okay. That's a very traditional, within Christian mysticism, that's a very traditional understanding of the relationship between contemplation and action. So, what I'd like to do now for, for the last few minutes in which I'm going to talk, and then we'll have a few minutes for discussion, is consider a much more modern example of this issue of how does mysticism relate to action in the world, um, and action in particular in the service of liberation of people within the world. So I'd like to talk briefly about someone who's not very well known in, in Christianity and in discussion of Christian mysticism, and that is a young man from Bolivia uh, in the 19, late 1960s and up in the, in the 1970 named Nestor Paz. So Nestor Paz was, he had been a seminarian in the Catholic Church. He didn't become a priest, but he was a seminarian for a while. He was a religious educator in the Catholic Church in Bolivia in the mid and late 1960s. And in 1970, when he was 25 years old, He had become so overwhelmed by um, government repression in Bolivia at this time, by the plight of the poor in Bolivia at this time, by repression uh, by the government and by social inequality that he decided that as a Christian, the only thing he could do was engage in an armed struggle against the government and attempt to overthrow the government because the government was so unjust Um, And people were suffering so greatly in his country that he saw an armed guerrilla movement as the only way to justly act as a Christian. And so what Nestor Paz did um, when he was 25 years old in 1970 is he went off into the mountains of Bolivia and joined um, what was called at that time the National Liberation Army. It was a a, a leftist guerrilla army in Bolivia at this time. Um, And they began a campaign in 1970 called the Teaponte Campaign, which was their attempt to engage in armed struggle against the government in the the attempt and in the hope of creating a more just social order in Bolivia. Um, so I want to stop there and suggest that Nestor Paz presents a, a challenging um, and a provocative example. Because when a lot of people hear about this, they think, okay, I'm struggling for justice and service. That's all well and good. But when you start engaging in, in something like armed struggle, that, that's a step further than most people want to go. And, and fine, well enough. But what I want to suggest to you is that this is an example of a person who was so aware of the necessity of making God's presence a reality in the world, that he saw this engagement in armed struggle against an unjust social order to be the only thing that he could do. And so in 1970, he went off into the mountains and joined this guerrilla campaign. It is a little hard to know exactly what his actions were as a guerrilla, um, but what we do know is after about three months, Uh, While he was living as a guerrilla, the group that he was with became cut off from any supplies and any food, and he ended up dying of starvation in October of 1970. Yeah, I know, powerful, right? Yeah, yeah. The gift that Nestor Paz left us is that he kept a journal during his time as a guerrilla. What I want to suggest to you is that his journal is a modern mystical text. His journal is the story of someone who is so aware of God's presence that the only thing that he can do is struggle for justice in the world. Um, And so what I want to suggest is that Nestor Paz presents the possibility of revolutionary political action, revolutionary political action as a mystical practice. So he leaves us this beautiful journal. And all I would like to do is read just three very brief passages from his journal. And um, there's actually not going to be probably a ton to say about any of these. But let me just make an observation about all three of these as I, as I get ready to read them. What all three of them suggest to me anyway, and, I'm, I, and this, is, this is where it's going to be pretty, pretty idiosyncratic to me. I mean, this is, this is how I'm understanding his journal. What they say to me is the idea of becoming aware of God, not just as you withdraw into quiet and stillness, but becoming aware of God in the midst of struggle and in the midst of struggle for justice. That's what I really see going on in Nestor Paz. And so his awareness of God is very much linked to his political action, uh, his revolutionary political action. And in fact, through that action, I believe he becomes more and more aware of God. Okay, so I just would like to read these passages for you, and then we'll, have, then we'll have a few minutes to discuss, okay, about anything that we've talked about. So these are all Nestor Paz in his journal writing about what's going on as he's in the mountains as a gorilla. So in the first passage he says, I keep trying to penetrate more into the reality of God, man, and history. So notice there that he, he wants to find God, but he wants to find God in the midst of history, in the midst of his fellow human beings. Not as something that's apart from that, but right there in the midst of it, right? I keep trying to penetrate more into the reality of God, man, and history. I pray easily, but it's like the stutterings of a beginner. God is here and I feel him the songs the psalms give me a lot of strength so he mentions a couple of mystical practices there right he's praying he's reading the bible his journal is full of references to that What I really want you to notice is this idea that he wants to become aware of God, but of God in the midst of history, of God in the midst of his people and the struggle to make his people free. And then he says, he has this powerful line. He says, God is here and I feel him. Now, when he writes this, he is living as a gorilla. He's carrying a gun, living as a gorilla up in the mountains, trying to engage in armed struggle against an unjust government. And he says in the midst of that, God is here and I feel him. Okay, so going to the next passage no matter what happens, we'll rise up. We're in the course of history of truth. The Lord is showing his face, or rather, we are weaving it with the threads which reality gives us and we ourselves create. So again, this idea of an awareness of God, the Lord is showing his face, but notice what he says. He makes God's presence a reality. He makes God's presence a reality through the struggle that he is engaged in. As he struggles for liberation, as he struggles for justice, God becomes more and more present. The Lord shows his face more and more. And then finally, this is, this, this is my favorite one. Okay? I, I, love how, I love the phrase that he starts this one with. It is a desire for encounter with the absolute, with God, in other words. It is a desire for encounter with the absolute, for destroying everything that can separate us so that we get at the heart of the matter, where the ferment of the real, of what is, of the absolute, is in turmoil. I mean, I just think that's so provocative. Notice what he's saying there. God is experienced, not in quietness, not in stillness, but in struggle, right? In turmoil, in ferment, right? In challenge. That as he struggles for justice, as he suffers for justice, and as he struggles for liberation, um, that is where he encounters the absolute. That is where he encounters God. So um, I think a powerful, challenging, a provocative example of what mysticism might look like, particularly what mysticism might look like in the here and now, and is related to the struggle for liberation. and so with that, everybody, thank you so much for listening to me talk a whole lot about this. I appreciate it. Um, we, we, have, we have some time. So we have about five minutes. All right, thank you. Thanks. Um, I, I would just like to, I, this is always the scary part of this for me, because I, I want to like say, OK, what did you notice? Um, anything jump out at you about this? And then I'm always worried that nobody's going to say anything. Okay. So really, just like maybe a couple of brave people to start us off for about five minutes. And this can be totally open. Any questions about anything we talked about? Or just any, it doesn't have to be a question, just anything you observed. Something that spoke to you in what we talked about, something that made you mad, something that you liked, I mean, whatever, right? I just, I would like to hear what your engagement with, was with what we talked about. Okay, Paula, go for it.
1: Well, it, just, it sounds like such an oxymoron that he could feel more the presence of God in, like, what you're calling armed conflict or armed conflict. Oh. It, it just makes you wonder how he kept growing his knowing of God that, you know, it wasn't as challenging as it was affirming.
0: Absolutely. It
1: seems like it be the most challenging, but he's like
0: what I would suggest is he found his journal would seem it's not me suggesting his journal would seem to suggest he found God more when he was up in the mountains struggling in armed conflict with the government than he ever had before that now he certainly had a sense of God before that it was his sense of God that led him to do that but he seemed to actually even grow that sense of God even seemed to grow through his through his struggle for justice there absolutely yeah yeah and I think that's where he presents something of, a, of a, um, an interrogation of the traditional view, because the traditional view, Gregory's view, is very much the idea that sometimes I'm helping people out and then sometimes I go off by myself to pray. And they're both good and they're both important. and I need to do both of them, but they're two pretty different things. Mr. Paz suggests, well, maybe you actually find God in the midst of the struggle. Maybe you actually find God in the moment of the challenge. The, 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 the struggle isn't something you withdraw from, it's something you actually engage in, and that's where God is encountered. Yeah, yeah, it's powerful. I did want to know what
1: other uh, traditions you're
0: gonna, or they're going to cover for the study. I'm going to let Nickel be able to tell you about that. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And can you tell the differences of them? Is he going to be able to tell the difference?
1: Like my question being, do are they a, more similar than they are different? I mean, are there variations that you know conflict in the mysticisms and the world?
0: Um, I'm I'm gonna i to try to answer that question. I'm answering in really broad strokes. Um, I I really this is this is me, but it's me informed by my study of mysticism. I believe that it's pretty hard to talk about mysticism as an abstraction. I think the best way to talk about mysticism is linked to the particular, in this case, linked to the particular religious traditions that it's a part of. And so that would automatically mean that while we can find certainly a lot of commonalities in mysticism across different religious traditions, there's lots of common themes, there's lots of similarities. Each of them is very distinct and unique to the particular religious tradition that they come from. That's where I think that definition is really helpful. In this, remember, we're talking about Christian mysticism here. Mysticism is a part of Christian belief and practice. It's related to the tradition as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Thanks. Anybody else? Uh, I'm intrigued
1: um, about this idea of becoming of
0: God. Yeah, yeah, deification. Yeah, yeah. Because I just had a class on like theosis and so Yeah, oh theosis, right okay, That's the Greek word for it. Absolutely. All right. I like it. I like it. So
1: at first I was like, is it possible yeah. for that to happen? Um, knowing human
0: nature. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So oh you're asking do it is a, you're asking me as a possible or <laughs> so reverend Leti, i need to get something on the floor right now so i'm a lowly scholar of mysticism i don't answer big questions like that no i'm just kidding you um, let me I, i'm not gonna i'm not gonna answer from my perspective i'm gonna answer from the perspective of um, this idea sort of like what i said to sarah about the idea of uh, in the early church theosis deification this idea of sharing partaking in the in the divine nature it was fundamental to Christianity, particularly in the early church. It was, it was, it was especially emphasized, you might know this if you studied it, it was especially emphasized in the eastern parts of, of the Christian church in particular. Um, and so that phrase, 2 Peter 1.4, in, in eastern Christianity, that is the fundamental text of the Bible, of the whole Bible. If you had to bo- boil the whole Bible down to one verse, it would be 2 Peter 1, four. It would be the idea that human beings can share in God's nature. Um, and yes, certainly... There is a recognition of human fallenness and human sinfulness. But what was focused on in that idea um, very simply was that when the incarnation occurred, when God became human, what happened was that human nature was fundamentally transformed in that moment because human nature became united to divine nature. And so the consequences of that is that we can become more and more like God through that process. The kind of classic um articulation of this is an early church saying it's most associated with a fourth century theologian named Athanasius, but you find some variation of it in lots of early church writers. And it says this, God became human so that humans could become God. You've heard it, right? And so that's the, that's the idea of deification right there, that when God takes on human nature, Human nature is changed in such a way that it, it now takes on God's nature. It's almost seen as a kind of God descending into us, and then we, in turn, ascending into God. That's kind of the thought of it. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I think what early Christians would say is, at best, we can get little glimpses of it in this life. We can get a little taste of it in this life. This is not really fulfilled until the union with God in the next life in heaven but at least we can have it at least it begins in this life the process starts in this life I think that's that's how it would be understood I think yeah that's a really beautiful question thank you thank you yeah please have a shake um what would you say was um when it comes to mysticism where the there was a deep hiding between like, the Roman Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox, or Ethiopian Orthodox. So it's really good. I, I actually think the issue of mysticism has very little to do with the split between the Eastern and Western churches. In fact, I'd I venture to say it has almost nothing to do with it, actually, yeah. The split between the Eastern and Western churches was really a split that was much more about issues of church leadership and how church governance was understood. That was really what it was about. Now, it did get very tied up with a theological dispute about how the Trinity was understood, particularly the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Um, but even that was really feeding into a more fundamental question, which was who really leads the church and how is church leadership understood? That all came to a head in the 11th century. And that's when officially, they'd been at odds with one another for a while, but that was in the 11th century was when officially they, they split into two churches. But I, I, I don't really think issues of mysticism and how mysticism were understood really played much role. I think both East and West had a strong mystical sense. They did sort of tend to emphasize different dimensions of the human experience of God and what that involved. Uh, As I I mentioned to Reverend Latia, the Eastern Church was really heavy on the deification stuff. It was present in the Western Church as well, but maybe not emphasized quite as much. But overall, I think both of them had a really strong mystical sense. The split was about much more institutional stuff, I think. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. It does remind us that this is all part of a larger reality, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I have a practical
1: question. Sure. So, what are some? We talked about What are some practices that maybe you've
0: found? Wow, that's that's a great question. Thanks. <laughs> I, I I often don't sort of like think about talking about myself about it. So I appreciate you asking that. Um, Uh, I think I think anything related to like what Nick did with us at the beginning tonight, just moments of stillness. Um, I think repetition. I when I've written about this, I've called it a verbal formula. Repetition of a short verse from the Bible or even just a a single meaningful word to you. Something that you can just use as a way to kind of quiet your mind, bring yourself to a place of stillness. I think those are really important practices. Um, As you might have picked up by what I've said tonight, I think the body is very important. So any practice that involves the body and awareness of the body and use of the body, I think can be very important. So um, for me, I'll just speak personally for me, the practice of yoga is very, very important. And so that would be, but anything that just engages the body, I think is very important. Um, And then the other thing that I I would really emphasize is that um, those things can sound like very individual practices. I think engagement with a religious community. And so that's why I've emphasized, you know, engagement with the rituals of the church i mean engage and whatever religious community it doesn't even have to be we don't have to be talk about christianity but engagement in religious ritual the understanding that religious ritual and religious ritual in the, in the presence of a community can become in some ways a way to become aware of god's presence yeah i think that those those would be the things i think that come to the top of mind yeah thank you thank you for asking that i appreciate that thank you
1: it almost reminds me of even like a I guess just speaking to like uh, Mr. Paz, uh, that example that you were given, it, it also reminds me of different like rallies and things yep. that happen here in town, or even just marches or yep. uh, sit-ins or that kind
0: of thing. Because you're you're definitely engaging your body in those types yep. of experiences. And yep. It's like in the midst of the struggle as well. Yep, I was I was just it's so funny that you say that, Nick. I was just reading something last night. I was I was reading reading an essay by by an activist, a present day activist. It was just something that was that was written in the last year. And she was talking about going to a political meeting and everybody stood up and held hands and um, sang Solidarity Forever. And in that moment, she was like, this is like a religious practice that we're involved in as we all sing Solidarity Forever. Though engaged, th- this is this is why why well, i wanted us to talk about destro Paz because i think he really suggests the idea that yeah engagement in liberatory struggles and struggles for justice those also can become mystical practices as well absolutely yeah that's a that's a that i think is a is a little bit of a is a little bit of a, a different than traditional way of understanding it but a very important way to understand it i think yeah yeah, yeah. okay let's do one more sarah go for it yeah um, that's that's the, remember the hidden the secret right i mean this is all about mystery okay so we're good we're good it's okay it's okay all right
2: well i was just thinking about like i'm reflecting now like having heard some of like this and studied some some of these things before but i'm thinking about the church that i grew up in was sort of a conservative evangelical space yeah. that we engaged in a lot of practices that like are referenced in these texts and a lot of like mystical practices and the things like the difference that i'm learning and this is where i feel like i'm really drawn to this because i was missing this mm-hmm. in my upbringing it has a lot to do with like um we engage in these practices together but like it was expected that it has a certain process and a certain outcome um that is very narrow all oh, right defined by something very uh limiting i guess i would describe as mm-hmm. that no. and
1: to me, this seems to,
0: like, these people, especially the like, like, that is deeply, like, sensual stuff. Like, that's, like, love it. songs I wasn't Love it, love it. And and just, just I, mean, I want you to keep going. I just want to pause for just a second and just note something that you observed there. If you read that text as a whole, she actually makes explicit reference to the Song of Songs in it. Oh, so, yeah. yeah, the Song of Songs is this, So for, I assume we all know something about it, but let me just, this, this very erotic, very sensual love poem between a bride and a bridegroom it is probably the single biblical book that is most referenced in Christian mystical texts. So, yeah, she draws very much on the imagery of that in in this text. If you read the text as a whole. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. 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 But it's, it is that, like, I think that connection to the body. Because I yep. think in it,
2: that um, in that particular church, like, the you know the body is sort of a vessel of sin. So, mm-hmm. you to, like, be aware of that. And not to mention, like, the sexism and, like. Yep. to body is then like a deep connection to humanity. I feel like the humanness of like the Christian tradition was very much cut out. It was so focused on purification and
0: divine that it wasn't like inviting that human doctor. So I I don't know. Anyway, just a reflection that this is I, I, I appreciate it, sir. I, I, I couldn't I, I don't know what to say other than I couldn't agree more. I mean, yeah, I think it is, you know, to focus on the body is to focus on at least some level of shared humanity. I mean, that's one thing we do all have in common. We all have bodies. You know, I mean, our bodies are very different. And we may understand them differently. But it, there is there is a common element there that connects us with all of humanity. That's exactly right. Um, and what I would suggest that mysticism says, I mean, it. It is going to be very true that if you read these mystical texts, there's going to be lots of references to the sinfulness of the body, the need to purify from bodily temptations. You're going to find those in all kinds of these texts. But I would also suggest, you've got to dig a little for it, but I would also suggest if you read them and you read them kind of creatively and you kind of go under the surface a little bit, what you also start to see is that the body can become a way to become aware of God as well. It's not just a bad thing. It could actually be a very good thing. It could actually become a tool for awareness of God as well. I mean, that's really what the sacraments are, right? They're physical rituals in which we become aware of God's presence. And so I think that's there as well. And to recover that and really give voice to that and emphasize that, I think, can be a really powerful thing. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So maybe I'll just end with this because it kind of builds on your comment. I just finished in the, sp- in, in the, the fall semester. I taught a, a course in Christian mysticism. And on the last day, we're, we're, I was just kind of discussing with the students, kind of what they got out of the text that we read and everything. It was all like tonight, but a whole semester was just reading primary text. Um, and um, a student said she had grown up Catholic. She's, she's about 22. She's getting ready to graduate from college. She'd grown up Catholic. And had done all the sacraments, all the rituals of the church, um, and said she just didn't understand what it was all actually really about. It just seemed like sort of just like something that you did because it's what you were supposed to do, kind of going through the motions. Not that it, not that it didn't have meaning or anything, but it was just sort of a question like what What's it really about, right?" And she said reading these mystical texts sort of helped her to understand that actually there it could be about something big. It could be about something profound and something and something really meaningful. And um, Wow, I thought that was really cool. I really liked that a lot. Yeah, it, it, it helped me to kind of sort of see like what the meaning of this could be. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, everybody, thank you. I, I think I took us a few minutes late. So I, I want to make sure we, I respect your time. So thank you so, so much. It was really a joy to talk with all of you. And I, I wish you well as you continue to talk about this. And I know that Nick has information about the topics to come in, in, in this discussion of mysticism. So thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks.